This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and what they have in common. This is another part in the Families Who Murder Together series. In this one, I will be discussing the Hillside Stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono. I managed to massacre their names at the end of the last episode. And then I'll also cover the Killing Cousins, David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield. I do have some exciting news. I now have a research assistant. It's very exciting to have someone else to dig through the mire with me. So we are certainly mud farmers, like uh, straight out of Monty Python. There's some lovely filth here. So my research assistant is Igor. Those of you who are fans of Young Frankenstein get the joke. Igor is my socially distant assistant and assists me with doing the research and other inner workings of the murder lab. So some of the research was actually done by Igor, and I'll get more into that here in a bit. I'll warn you, I'm going to start with a rant. So the reason I decided to do Gordon Waterfield, along with Bianchi and Bono, is they're all cousins. Well, not all four of them together, but Bianca and Bono are cousins, and then Gorn Waterfield are cousins. So it seemed perfect. We're doing a cousins episode. I did not count on how many similarities I would find. It wound up being rather fortuitous, I guess. But one of the things they have in common really pisses me off. In both cases, you have one person that blabs about everything, and the other person clams the fuck up. And the one that's talking is a big fucking liar. So <laughs> it's... And I guess I should uh, qualify that it's possibly due to a mental illness, the lying, but it still boils down to fucking lying. So it's hard to tell what the truth is when the person speaking in both cases. So in with Bianchi and Bono, Bianchi is the one who blabbed, and in Waterfield and Gore, it was Gore. So Gore and Bianchi, they both told their stories, changed their minds, told different stories, and they kept changing their fucking minds. So there are different versions of what, what, what happened. So it's frustrating that the information we have comes from unreliable people, even more so than usual, I feel, and then the other dude's just not saying shit. On top of that, the books themselves, well, the authors of the books, have their own opinions. For example, my main references for The Hillside Stranglers are Two of a Kind, The Hillside Stranglers by Darcy O'Brien and The Hillside Strangler, A Murderer's Mind by Ten Swars. I read Two of a Kind first and Two of a Kind... It basically tells a story like you're watching it happen. So it has dialogue between the two, and it's easy to get sucked in. Well, she does a good job of showing how the scenes might have panned out to the point where I had to remind myself that these aren't actual quotes. Like, we don't know that they actually said these words exactly this way. 
and even necessarily the events unfolded this way. And it shows them in it together, 100%, and has a lot of the cops' point of views. So it weighs more heavily on them being guilty and pieces of shit, basically. I don't know. I don't know a better way to... I mean, they don't come right out and say it, but it's obvious from their actions and what they say that they are pieces of shit. Now, I am glad that I decided to put the episode off a little bit and read The Hillside Strangler because it is a different beast. First of all, you'll notice Two of a Kind is noted is also called The Hillside Stranglers, while this book is called The Hillside Strangler. This book focuses purely on Kenneth Bianchi. And while Two of a Kind just unabashedly just jumps in like, Angelo said this and Ken said that, and so they went and killed some people. And this is what they said probably while they were doing it. This one comes is, is uh, more like, Ken was living a peaceful life with his wife and Ken would do this. And then they saw a newspaper article about this killing and Ken thought, oh, that's terrible. And then Ken went about his life. And then it gets into, oh, but then he's rested. And then it comes out, he has a split personality. And Angelo's mentioned kind of at the end. <laughs> so um, now in Two of a Kind, they do mention the split personality. But they basically write it off, more or less. They do spend some time trying, you know, explaining how the doctors examined him. and But they basically boil it down to a ruse. Whereas The Hillside Strangler by Ted, he, uh, you can tell he totally believes that he, that Ken was a split personality. So it's interesting to see one book go about it as, you know, they both did it and they liked doing it. And here's this from their point of view. Whereas The Hillside Strangler is like, oh, well, he, he didn't know. So I'm going to show it from a more, I guess, objective point of view. I don't know if objective is the right word, but like pulled back and just show Ken as if he didn't know what was going on. And then we'll get into when he starts discovering that he did this, apparently. So so you have one book that's completely on board with them being shit. And the other book is, well, you know, Ken had some problems. And he did terrible things, but he had some problems. And Angelo was there, you know, like, here was Angelo's piece of the trial. So it's also difficult because then, like I said... Especially the first thing you read, because that's basically the baseline you have of information. So it's important while I'm reading it, like I said, Two of a Kind was easy to get sucked into because it, it took you into the scenes. And so it was easy to be like, oh, so they really did do this. And then they said this and, and they flipped a coin. And But I didn't really see much else about like flipping a coin. And there are some things that I just had to calm myself down and pull myself back but the same thing with the Hillside Strangler, where it's just focused on Ken, where it was all focused the other way. Like, Ken probably did have split personalities. So it's, I find the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. It may not always be the case, but that's why it's good to try to be as neutral as you can, which was difficult with these. Another example is Igor read Killing Cousins for the Gorn Waterfield portion. And while Igor was working on that, I started to read the serial killer letters where Gore had written to this woman from prison. And so the first thing I read was what he said about everything. And then I went through and looked at Igor's notes and it was quite different. 
so again, you have that that reference where you're thrown off like, well, this is coming from Gore. So he's not totally reliable. And some of the details in The Killing Cousins, I was like, I don't know. So that's why it's good that there was another book. So I got the book Innocent Prey, and that helped. That was a little more middle of the road. So it helped um, illuminate me some more, at least give me some more points of reference that I could go off of. And, and then, of course, I always do the extra research where I have a, all of my serial killer encyclopedias and a ton of different books that um, I cross-reference and just double-check and see what details are the same across the board or what seems like it's not a thing. Basically, this episode was harder than usual to try to just include the details that were the same across the board because they all were wibbly wobbly and hurt my brain and that's part of the reason it took it took a little while to get to this because I kept getting mired down in the details it's the it's like what happened when I did the calendar research there were so many things that it was hard to wrap my brain around so I appreciate you waiting for this episode it's probably going to be an extra long one because there's a lot of stuff these guys did, and I'm going to try to boil it down because I will be covering them in other episodes for other things that they've done. I'm going to begin with the Hillside Stranglers, who are Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono. And I don't know why, but their last names trip me up, so I'm probably just going to be calling them Ken and Angelo. The dates of the murders are October 1977 to February 1978, and then two in January of 1979. The number of deaths, there were definitely 10 women and girls from ages 12 to 28. There are possibly more than 12. And then Ken did two by himself, possibly five. So we'll get, again, we'll, we'll get more into this. Angela was 44 and Ken was 26 when they were caught. The murderings happened primarily in Los Angeles. The two that Ken did by himself were in Washington. The book references, as I stated before, but I'll state it again, Two of a Kind, The Hillside Stranglers by Darcy O'Brien and The Hillside Strangler, A Murderer's Mind by Ted Swars. It's S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. Angelo Bono was born in Rochester, New York on October 5th, 1934. His parents split up and he stayed with his mom where they moved to L.A., he began stealing cars at 14 and spoke of rape and anal sex. He idolized a criminal named Carol Chessman, who was known as the Red Light Bandit. Their MO was pretending to be a cop, sexual assault on women. He got caught and then defended himself and managed to push back his execu execution for 12 years. Now, Angelo felt that the biggest problem is that he didn't kill the women. He left witnesses, so he was able to get caught. But he did admire the fact that, that Carol defended himself and managed to push his uh, execution back. But that's an interesting uh, hero to have at a young age. Or at any point, really. At 17 years old, he got Geraldine Yvonne Vinal Vinal pregnant in 1955. He married her, but he left a week later. So which reminds me of H.H. Um, Holmes, the first person that he married... He basically just ditched her too. She had a son named Michael Lee, and then she filed for divorce. About a year later, he fathered another son, this one named Angelo Anthony Bono III, and married the 17-year-old mom, Mary Catherine Castillo. He called her Candy. Then she wound up having four more of his children, Peter, Danny, Louise, and Grace. They divorced in 1964 due to Angelo's violence and sexual behavior. Supposedly, I saw this in a couple things, don't know how 
true it is, but might not be. I wouldn't really necessarily be surprised. Uh, supposedly, he forced anal intercourse with her in front of the kids because she didn't feel like in a romantic mood. She didn't feel like getting it on. So he made her. And naturally, as you would do, is you would do it in front of your kids to teach everyone the lesson because that's good parenting. 1965, he lived with Nanette Campina, 25-year-old. She had his kids, Tony and Sam. So by the time he was 35, he had eight kids. He beat her, but threatened her so she'd stay. Though she finally decided to leave in 1971 because her 14-year-old daughter, Nanette, said Angela was fondling her and making obscene suggestions. Supposedly, he said that she needs, quote-unquote, breaking in. So Nanette was worried that he had actually succeeded in raping his, her daughter, so she got the fuck out and took her kids to Florida. The next year, Angelo married Deborah Taylor. They never lived together and never got divorced. So apparently that was just one of those things you do. I mean, he seems to have a pattern, like right after he gets divorced, like a year later, he gets married. So maybe he was just like, I don't know, it's my pattern. I'm gonna, I'm nothing if I'm not consistent. He hung out with a guy named Ralph Harper, aka Artie Ford, who was an aspiring actor. He met some people through him, including Frank Sinatra. Angelo got a reputation for handling classic and antique car upholstery, so he actually wound up dealing with Frank Sinatra's car. Artie claims, or at least in two of a kind, Artie claims that Angelo told him he had banged Annette, which was the 14-year-old stepdaughter, and that he turned her over to his sons, and that Angelo's son Peter said that Angelo had sex with him too. I didn't really see much that went in-depth about any of that, really. But I did see it kind of mentioned in another article or two, but I don't know if they're all just referencing two of a kind. In two of a kind, they come right out and say that he's sharing women with his sons and his sons are sharing women with him and they're watching porn together and it's all like swinging and hanging out and, you know, and he's having sex with his daughters and his actual daughters. But again, I didn't really see much anywhere else, so I don't know how much to credit that. On to Ken. He was born May 22nd, 1951. He was a child of a prostitute who gave him up at birth. His foster mom handed him around to people because she didn't really feel like dealing with him. So she just like, I don't know, you watch him for a while. I know you watch him for a while. I don't care. Finally, at three months old, he was adopted by Francis Bianchi, Nicholas Bianchi. Now, Francis is Jenny Bono's sister. So they are not blood cousins. Ken was adopted cousin. So that is kind of an interesting element of it's obviously not in their bloodlines necessarily to become this way because Ken didn't have the same blood. So that's kind of an interesting little twist there. His dad was a gambler and his mom was protective. She couldn't have children and that's why they adopted. He grew up a compulsive liar. They took him to a doctor and diagnosed him with petite mal seizures because he would have do a thing where his eyes would roll back in his head and his mom's like he's daydreaming again. But then they said well he's having seizures but it's not a big deal he'll grow out of it. And he had problems with redding his pants. That was an issue for his mom. She was already overprotective, so having these other things certainly amped up her hyperness. By 11, his inattention to school and angry outbursts caused his mom to worry even more. They tested his IQ. It's 116, which is bright normal, but he was performing below capacity. He spoke to a therapist. He said the Ken was overly hostile and overly dependent on his mother and the mother needing counseling. So there's several different places where you see that people, different people are like, yeah, she needs to calm the fuck down and she needs to see someone about it. But she declined. 
she thought religious school would help him. She didn't she didn't think she needed help. But she figured, well, we'll have send him to religious school and see if that helps. It didn't. His dad died at 13, which it's not a surprise that that was traumatizing for him, but it was particularly traumatizing because I guess they hadn't been as close and then they had just started to bond. So it was that terrible moment where they were just now really starting to get each other and then he's taken away. At 18, he married his high school sweetheart, which it says Brenda Beck in Two of a Kind, but in Ted's book, she's named Laura. At any rate, he married her. And then it didn't last very long and they wound up getting divorced. In some references, she caught him cheating. Some, they say they just didn't get along. I don't fucking know. I just know they divorced. What's interesting, it's so funny because in Two of a Kind, they're like, oh yeah, he's fucking everybody. He, you know, he's always, he wants, he loves to have um, relationships where the woman is monogamous with him, but he does whatever he wants. But he, he liked to have that one woman who is faithful and then he could just go out and get side pieces. But in The Hillside Strangler by Ted, he just said he was faithful to one woman at all times. He needed one woman. So there's no mention of philandering or anything like that. So again, it's really interesting to see two completely different perceptions of the same person. So we saw the wetting his pants. The adoption can also be considered a serial killer trait that isn't uncommon. He also has the wanting to be a cop thing, which if you're not familiar, that's another common theme like Ed, Edmund Kemper. He used to um, hang out with cops. So it's not necessarily surprising that he wanted to be a cop. He took classes in police science and psychology, but he was rejected by the sheriff's department. So he became a security guard, and this allowed him to steal things. He really liked to steal things. He had to keep changing jobs because he liked to steal so much. Now, about uh, 1971, he was still in Rochester, and there was a series of murders called the Alphabet Murders, or the Double Alphabet Murders, where three little girls were killed, they were all raped and strangled. There's 10-year-old Carmen Colon found in Churchville, 11-year-old Wanda Walkowitz found in Webster, and 11-year-old Michelle Manza in Macedon. Ken was questioned for those, but they apparently didn't see any big deal and they let him go. It remains unsolved to this day. So that's a little, uh, that's when I said earlier that he killed two, possibly five. He possibly killed those. And it's interesting because they were all raped and strangled. In Hillside Strangler, he does have some more things that tie them together, but I'm not sure how accurate those are. I'm, when I cut, I will be covering the double alphabet murders and, and I'll do an episode where we talk about his connection. So right about the time, right after the alphabet murders, he wound up moving to LA to live with his cousin. Angelo. Now, Angelo started his own shop in 1975 at 703 East Colorado Street. Angelo at this time sometimes was called Tony or the Buzzard or the Italian Stallion. I love that in Two of a Kind, they say, quote, thumbs the size of zucchinis. That is a vivid depiction of how big his hands were, apparently. But he was wiry and 5'10". Ken, on the other hand, he was, well, he was 5'11". 180 pounds. He had acne scars on his neck. And then a lot of times he had a mustache. Apparently, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes something specifically said he liked to get a perm. So once he moved to California, he applied for the Glendale police. He was turned down. 
He tried the L.A. Police Department reserves. Was turned down. I think you see a pattern emerging. I'm sure he did, too. I mentioned before that he had studied psychology, and he was interested in it. He wanted to set up shop as a psychologist, but not actually go through and do the, re the work that it would take to become an actual one. So he was reading books about it. He bought some ready-made college degrees that didn't require study, so he got a bunch of diplomas that said that he was a psychologist. In order to get out of the house and get on his own, he wound up taking a job with the California Land Title Company. He got an apartment on Garfield Avenue. And apparently at, the, at this point, he had a neighbor named Christina Weckler who supposedly shunned him. He began handing out flyers for his psychology business. And in 1977, he met Kelly Boyd. He, they moved in together. She was pregnant by May. He proposed, but she said she needed some time because he wasn't really consistent and he was jealous. He told her that he had cancer. So he would have her drive him to the hospital. He'd go get chemo and she'd wait for him. And in one version, she didn't want to marry him if he might just die after they get married. But in other things, she seems like she's actually very concerned. So it's hard for me to believe that she that would be her attitude. It seemed like what really bothered her was that he was bad with money and he just, again, he wasn't consistent and she wanted someone who was going to be able to be stable and be there for her. Now, the cancer also affected work. He just wouldn't feel like going to work and said he had chemo if he didn't feel like working. Not too long after that, he was asked to leave his job because they found pot at his desk. Of course, he said it wasn't his, but that didn't really work. So he wound up getting a job at Stewart West Coast Title and he moved to Tamarind Avenue. He got an office for his psychology job that was non-existent, and he would just basically wait for the phone to ring to see if anybody would call him. He would do, like, um, weight loss consultation and things like that, you know, if anyone called, which didn't sound like many people were calling. At the end of 1977, Angelo wanted to hire prostitutes to work for them. And again, Angelo wanting prostitutes comes from the mouth of Ken. Angelo, I never saw anything where Angelo admitted that he wanted to hire prostitutes. I actually saw where apparently he told the cops he didn't really have anything to do with it. It happened at his house, but Ken was the one who arranged everything that he just, they just used his place. So, <laughs> at any rate, they got Sabra Hennen, age 16. She was from New York and she was looking for a modeling job. Right away, they saw their mark. And Ken said, well, you know, we can get you a job making $500 a week. Failing to mention it was actually going to be for prostitution. They ended up getting Sabra in a bad place. And she began prostituting for him out of Angelo's house. At this time, someone hired Sabra to party with them. And one of them had access to a County of Los Angeles decal for his car. So he said he'd give one to Kenny. And thereafter... Kenny had a seal on his car for the County of Los Angeles, which is a way to make him look official, which you'll see will come in handy soon. They had Sabra bring in another girl, Rebecca Spears, or Becky Spears, who was 15 years old. She also came from Phoenix and was forced into prostitution as well. Apparently, Angelo was so brutal that, I'm just going to quote the book, so brutally and frequently did he attack Becky's rear that he tore her sphincter muscles and she resorted to wearing a tampon in her rectum to control her bowels. That's a lot. Um, I read in some where it says both Becky and Sabra 
but I'm pretty sure it was just Becky, although I wouldn't be surprised if it was both, because he was known for his violence and his love for anal intercourse. But that's an important thing to keep in the back of your mind. They started to use a service to get their names out there. Foxy Ladies. They put them on Foxy Ladies' outcall list, so that way when people would call the service, they would be on the list that would go to the client for some lovin's. Becky got a call to go see a lawyer named David Wood. Well, she was so pitiful and upset, and he was so concerned for her well-being when she explained to him her situation, he helped her escape. So thank God for this kind-hearted lawyer. I mean, is that what Pretty Woman is based off of? I don't know. I actually don't know that I've seen Pretty Woman in a long time, but it seems similar. Soon after, Sabra escaped. So thank God she got away. So now they're left without any sex workers working for them. Not very happy. They actually, um, Angelo, when Becky left, he actually went and tried to threaten David Wood, but apparently David Wood had friends with the Hells Angels. So the Hells Angels uh, threatened Angelo and uh, surprise, he uh, left David alone. So right after this, they, they started talking about raping and killing a sex worker and they began prowling. While they were looking around, they came upon this woman who was walking. They started talking to her and they were gonna abduct her, but her a picture fell out of her wallet and in the picture, she was sitting on Peter Lorre's lap. So it was Peter Lorre's daughter, Catherine. Peter Lorre, if you don't know, you need to look him up if you don't know who he is. Hopefully you know who he is, but he was a fantastic actor. The interesting thing about this is Peter Lorre was in Fritz Lang's movie M about serial killer Peter Curtin. So that's kind of a weird connection there. Soon after, they found another woman to work for them. It gave the name Jennifer Snyder, but I only saw that in Two of a Kind. I didn't see that any anywhere else. So I'm not sure if that's really her name or not, but doesn't change the fact that they had another sex worker working for them it, from Angelo's spare room. They had gotten her number from Sabra before Sabra left. Now, wanting to amp up their game, they went to a sex worker named Donna Noble, who sold them a trick list of 175 men's names. Supposedly, they sold, she sold it for a dollar a name. $175 is a good investment if you're going to get access to 175 men that will pay a pretty good amount to get their milkshake shaken. I, do, I don't know. <laughs> That's all they came to mind. Three prostitutes were with her, including Yolanda Washington. They confirmed that it was an out-call list and not an in-call list. So again, an out-call list means that the women would go out of their house to go visit the gentlemen in their house, as opposed to an in-call list, which means the ladies would stay in and the men would come to them. It turns out it was an in-call list and not an out-call list. And Angelo obviously didn't want people coming in and out of his house at all times because he wanted to be under the radar. So they were pissed off. They couldn't find Donna, who sold it to them, but they remembered Yolanda was with her and they knew where to find her, so they decided to go kill her. Kenny raped her as Angela drove. She was handcuffed and then strangled. Ken took her turquoise ring and then they dumped her naked body beside the road. She was found on October 18th. Now I point out the turquoise ring because they did wind up finding that as evidence when they caught Ken. On October 31st, Judy Miller's body was found. She was a 15-year-old sex worker. 
they found her lying naked near the street, and there's no attempt to hide her. The guy who found her put a tarp over her because he didn't want the kids to see her body, which frustrated the cops when they came because they don't know what was on the tarp, and they didn't want any, you know, stuff from the tarp getting on the body and maybe tainting the scene and, and interfering with the investigation. But it's, I mean, it's an understandable impulse. She had ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles, possibly made by handcuffs. She was vaginally and anally raped, and she was strangled by a ligature. Judy had a piece of fluff on her eyelid that they didn't know what it was. The way they apprehended her is they pretended to be cops. They even had a badge. Now, in one source, it said that he found it at a swap meet, but another source says that Angelo got it at a TV show set. So, who the hell knows? So, they had a badge, which they used to get her. One would pick up the sex worker... And then another one would come upon them and act like a cop. They'd handcuff her and then take her back to Angelo's house. Now, Ken said that they put a rag in her mouth, covered her with tape three times around the head, put foam pieces over her eyes that came from Angelo's upholstery business, and then taped that around her head. It turns out that piece of fluff on her eyelid was actually part of that foam. And they were actually, they were able to f identify that as a piece of upholstery from Angelo's place later on. Of course, in the meantime, right now, they didn't know what the hell it was. They didn't know who the hell was doing it. They did figure at this point that it was probably two people because the bodies didn't look like they had been dragged. It was obvious they hadn't been killed where they were left. If, if it was one person, you would see dragging marks or some kind of indication of difficulty in lugging the body. But in neither of these cases, they didn't find that. So it seemed like it was two men that lifted the woman, women up and, and disposed of them. In November, 6th or 9th, Lissa Caston was found. She was also nude and strangled by a ligature. She was only about six or seven miles from the other victim. She was a 21-year-old waitress and dancer. Apparently, she was a good girl, as one book had been quotes, good girl. So apparently, even though she was a dancer, she was not like um, a stripper or she actually prided herself on being like a technical dancer. She took ballet. Although... In Two of a Kind, it says that she complained that she wasn't making enough money and she told her mom she thought of becoming a sex worker. So I don't know. That doesn't seem as in character. According to the other stuff that I read about her, I guess you never know. That's, again, that's the other frustrating thing is we don't always know. This was another case where they pretended they were cops. They had followed her when she got out of her car. They said they needed to question her for a burglary. So they wound up handcuffing her and abducting her and taking her to Angelo's apartment and when they realized she had hairy legs they didn't want to have sex with her so they used a root beer bottle to molest her and then they strangled her and left her where she was found. I believe she was the only one of the victims that was not actually raped. In some sources they list Jill Barcombe as the next victim on 11-9. She was in 18-year-old sex worker found naked and strangled, had severe head trauma. However, in Two of a Kind and in a bunch of other stuff that I looked at, she wasn't mentioned at all. So I was completely confused that she was mentioned in uh, The Hillside Strangler by Ted, but not Two of a Kind and not in a bunch of other lists. At first, I thought it was like, sometimes, you know, they change a victim's name. And then as you get further away from it, they're able to start using the real name. But there was nothing. There were no victim's names that it matched up with or it could have been. So it was obvious this is an additional victim. I found that in 2005, it turns out they found fingerprints on her of Rodney Alcala, who is another serial killer. So there was were two serial killers operating at the same time in the same area. So it's interesting that she was on the Hillside Strangler list 
for a while and then they took her off because they weren't sure and it turns out that it was a different serial killer's victim. How fucked up is that? I will actually be doing an episode where I talk about overlapping serial killers at some point so this will probably be brought up again. The next victim on the list is technically Kathleen Robinson from 11-17-77. It's Robinson or Robertson but this is exactly the same as Jill Barcombe in that I can't find her anywhere. Couldn't find her listed officially as a victim. Although I couldn't find anything. Like, at least with Jill, I found that there was some resolution on her. But I didn't find anything that said, uh, you know, absolutely that Kathleen was found to be the victim of someone else or if that's unsolved. So I don't believe that she is considered an actual Hillside Strangler victim. But that affects, like, when you see if they had 10 or 12 victims. Because a victim count, if you counted Jill and Kathleen, it would be 12. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. So there's still a few more murders to get through before we get to the 10 to 12 body count. At this point, we have Yolanda, Judy, and Lissa. So right now we're at three. Well then, on November 20th, two bodies were found in a junkyard by children. And the bodies were of two little girls, Dolores Cepeda, 12 years old, and Sonia Johnson, 14. Someone saw that when they got off the bus, they were talking to someone in a car. They had been raped and strangled and they were naked. So they fit into the pattern of the hillside strangler. And later Ken did admit that, that they had abducted them. And those were the youngest ones that they abducted. On the same day, the body of Christina Weckler was found, a 20-year-old art student. She had ligature marks, blood in her rectum, and then an added thing was that she had arm puncture marks. It wasn't consistent with like your drug using. It was puzzling. What it wound up being is this time they decided to have some fun and inject her with cleaner. The way they tried to kill her was instead of just strangling like they would normally do, they actually put a pipe with gas in her mouth and then put a bag over her head and sealed it so she would die by suffocation. But it was taking too long and she wasn't dying. So they decided to just strangle her the same way they had been. Apparently, th that was the most gruesome one. That one took an hour and a half, and supposedly it was difficult for Ken to talk about because it was such a terrible way for someone to die. Now, if you remember, I mentioned Christina Weckler at the beginning of the episode because she lived at the apartments at Garfield where he lived, and supposedly she had shunned him. So, so when they were having trouble getting a victim, he decided to pinpoint her, which also leads to his undoing because he's able to be affiliated with Garfield Place later. And then they're like, oh, that's interesting. He lived at Garfield Place where she lived. Now, how they got her out of the apartment is he pretended to be in the police reserves. She knew him and he said, look, someone hit your car and I need you to come out and look at it and I'll help you out. Although he claims later that he invited her to a party. I think it was probably the cop thing because that was their, their ammo anyway and he just didn't want to look like a dickhead so he said he invited to a party oh i mean he's gonna look like a dickhead anyway but you know even serial killers have their standards just a few days later on 11 23 jane king's body was found she was a 28 year old actress model scientologist who was waiting on the bus again they acted as cops and they wound up kidnapping her raping her and suffocating her on 11 29 the body of lauren ray wagner was found. She was an 18-year-old business college student. They saw her at a donut shop, followed her, showed her the badge, told her to pull over, said they'd take her in. They dragged her to the car. The neighbor's dog was barking, and as they drove away, they noticed that the neighbor was noticing them. They still went ahead, took her to Angelo's house, where they paired away insulation on an electrical cord, taped them to her hands, and plugged them in. They expected the shock to kill her, but it didn't. So they kept trying. When that wasn't working, they decided to go with their old method of 
strangulation with a ligature. And she actually was found with burn marks on her hand. So now they're amping it up, where with Christina Weckler, they had injected her. And now with Lauren, they were trying electrocution. They did wind up calling the neighbor and threatening her. She was a little old lady, but she wound up being able to describe them really well and was a great witness. So at this point, there are eight bodies, all of them naked, showing ligature marks, and the tests of the semen that were on or around some of the bodies had no antigens, which means that one of the guys was a non-secretor. And what that means is it doesn't determine their blood type. Their blood type does not appear in their semen. And I think like only 14 to 20 percent of the population of males is a non-secretor. Ken happens to be a non-secretor. There was an empty apartment in Ken's building. And again, this is at Tamarind. They decided that they would have a sex worker come so they could kill her in the empty apartment. Since it was empty, no one's tied to it. So they figured it's, you know, there's no way they could go wrong with it. They contacted Climax Nude Modeling and 18-year-old Kimberly Diane Martin showed up, though she went by the name Donna. They wound up killing her, raping and murdering her. Now, in some cases, it says they tortured her. But then in another one, it says there were no experiments on her. So I don't know for sure. I didn't remember seeing anything about any marks on her body that showed torture. At any rate, her body was found on December 14th. One of the things that ends up getting him later is that that she was associated with Tamron Departments because they had a call log saying that that's where she was called to go to. And then they also had the number was from a phone booth right near the library near the apartments. And Ken's girlfriend, Kelly was able to tell the police that he would use that phone sometimes when theirs wasn't working. So again, these are ways that he's connected later. At this point, Kenny is fired. He moves out. And then Kelly finds out Ken did not have cancer and there was no chemo. So he was pretending to go get chemo, pretending to have cancer, and he did not have cancer. Piece of shit. Pathological liar. I'm sure It's Always Sunny fans have that come to mind when Charlie pretends to have cancer. And then there's a there's a scene in Seinfeld where John Lovitz's character is pretending to be sick and go bald. And Jerry says to George, well, I don't think you could even pretend to have cancer. And George is like, no, I could, I could do that. Soon after that, Kelly had a boy. They named Ryan. In some references, they call him Sean. But in Two of a Kind, they specifically say that it was funny that he was named Ryan because it was named after... Like a dude in a soap opera they liked, but then it was also the name of a cop that had questioned Ken. So to Ken, it was extra funny that he would name his son after a cop. So I think the name kid's name was actually Ryan, though, like I said, you might see the name Sean here and there, which they may have even done to try to protect his identity. At the end of that month, a waitress came to Angelo's shop named Cindy Hudspeth. She was 20 years old. She was looking for a job. She was getting floor mats for a car, but she happened to mention she was looking for a job. And they said, well, you know, we've got leads for you. We can just come in here and we'll, we'll tell you. And then, of course, they found her and raped her. They put her body in the trunk of her car and then pushed the car off the side of the road. So this is the, um, the first one where they actually tried to hide the body. And, of course, it was a bright orange Dotson. So they wound up being found and she had been raped and like the other ones. So they knew that she was a, a victim of the Hillside Stranglers. Now in the press at this point, they were saying the Hillside Strangler singular because they thought it was one person. The cops hadn't really been 
made it obvious that there were two because, you know, sometimes in investigations, it's better to try to keep things on the down low while you're trying to search. Ken got a job delivering surgical instruments for a hospital, and the cops came to interview him several times. He's not nervous because, you know, Mr. Pathological Liar is smooth and able to keep himself out of trouble, at least for a while, which Angelo's starting to get nervous that Ken is getting questioned by the cops. But that doesn't affect him enough in his love life because he gets married again to Typhoon Fanny Lung, L-E-U-N-G, 21-year-old from Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Ken being persistent, he tried one more time with his psychiatric practice. He put an adult for an assistant, and when the applicant, Stephen Walker, sent his information for the job, Ken used it to get a diploma. So basically, he got all of Ken Walker's information and then told the school, like, hey, I'm Stephen Walker. I lost my diploma. Can you please send one to me? But make the name blank because I have someone that I'm going to have put in calligraphy. So he ended up getting it with his own name. So that's another way that he got a diploma showing that he had a psychiatric experience, you know, education. And the name Steve Walker will come back to haunt him. It still falls through. He ends, he ends up not really being able to do anything with his psychiatric practice. Kelly decided to move to her hometown of Bellingham, Washington. Kenny decided to move with her. At this point in two of a kind, Angelo's done with him and he's afraid, you know, that he's going to get, Ken's going to get them caught and he's sick of them. So he has him leave. In the other book, it seems like kind of more in passing that Angelo's like, yeah, just go ahead and go. And it's more that Ken made the decision, like, I want to be with Kelly. I want to start over. I think it's probably a little bit of both. When he gets there, he gets a job as security at a hardware slash variety store. He began to steal again. I guess he wasn't caught. So he managed to get a better job as a security officer for alarm system company. And the Whatcom County Sheriff's Reserve accepted his application, so he started taking classes in police procedure. He's got a decent job, and he's been accepted by the police in this reserve program. So things are going up for him. And plus, he's with Kelly and his son, so, you know, things should be fine, right? He should be able to move forward and maybe resist the urge to kill. Maybe that would go away because he's got stuff going on for him. Alas, that is not the case. He got bored or apparently Kelly and him were fighting so maybe it's surmised that he wanted to lash out at her whatever the reason he realized he's got some freedom as a security officer for an alarm system company he knew this girl named Karen Mandick this 22 year old that he had worked with before realized this house was empty their owners weren't going to be home so he tells Diane hey we're switching over their security system so for a couple hours their house is going to be alarmless so will you please come and watch the house I'll pay you $100 we need to do it under the table and I don't want the owners to know because they might be weird about someone being in their house so um it's just this personally will make me feel better if you're there and she's like well can my roommate Diane Wilder come and he's like sure that's fine that's great so just don't tell anyone because I don't want to get in trouble because you know we're really not necessarily supposed to do it this way and when they get there in version one which is in two of a kind he urges Karen to the basement to check the fuses and then he strangles her with a cord from behind her on the stairs then he gets Diane to come in and he pushes her down the stairs and strangles her he's not aroused so he just kind of half-heartedly masturbates over the bodies and then he puts the bodies in karen's car drove them to a nearby cul-de-sac and left so version one he did not molest them he didn't do anything but masturbate over them but in the version in the other book he takes them to the basement ties them up and rapes them 
and then strangles them. And apparently he goes into detail. They just say he goes into detail about how he raped them. And everything else I read, he had raped them. So I'm thinking that's most likely the case because they do they do mention finding his pubic hair and that's one of the reasons they how they tied him to it. And I think that's, I mean, you could get a pubic hair from masturbating over them. But anyway, most likely that's going to be what happened is that he raped them. He was arrested the next day. Karen had told somebody. In some cases, it's her boyfriend. One case, it's her boss. Another case, she told two dudes. She told someone and someone took notice and went checking for her and called the cops. The cops go to her apartment and they find a note that had that house number and Ken's name. They go to Ken's place and they find stolen goods. So that's a, a reason, another reason to look more into them, which they don't want to believe that it's him because he wasn't, he had a good reputation. His boss thought he was on the up and up, the clients loved him. So it was hard for them to believe that it could be him. But then there are just too many things pointing that it was him. So they look at his license and his license is still from, has the Tamarind address in LA. So they call LA and then those cops are end up connecting him like, okay, so hold on. He has a Tamarind address on his license because this last victim was found, you know, she was went to Tamarind which he lived at. And then they're like, wait a second. He also lived at Garfield, where Christina Weckler was from. So the dominoes start to fall and they start really pointing out, okay, Ken is probably the hillside strangler. Ken, of course, gives up Angelo. The cops go to question Angelo and Angelo's like, well, I don't know nothing. You know, didn't give anything up, clams the fuck up. And a side note, so apparently Angelo had a buzzer in his office, so he'd know when his wife was coming home. Because during the interview, there's a buzz and the cops are like, what the? And he's like, oh yeah, it's my wife. I got to know when she's coming and going. Which reminded me of Brutos. Because Jerry Brutos, in his garage, where he did his killings, he had a buzzer. So that way his wife could not just come in. She would have to buzz and say, oh honey, I need something out of the freezer. And she couldn't walk in and just find more of his breast trophies that he had tried to make. Well, when the cops started asking around, Angelo's ex-wife, Candy, were happy to tell him about how um, he would handcuff her and tie her to the bed and how brutal he was and she didn't think he'd hesitate to kill. She also mentioned a place he called the Cow Patch that he would go make out with women. Um, that's where he got his first wife pregnant. And it's also where one of the bodies was found. So all of the, you know, all of this is not settling too well with uh, Angelo. Then his good friend Artie Ford mentioned that story about how supposedly he had sex with his stepdaughter and his own son and that he had also thrown in there that he thought about turning on the gas stove and hoping his ex-wife would light a match and it would kill, burn them down. And Artie was like, what about if your kid's in the house? And he's like, I don't care. So again, these are not great character witnesses for him. After Kennedy was arrested, he claimed he had amnesia and he didn't remember anything. And then they found a multiple personality named Steve. And as they get talking and more and more, Steve says his last name is Walker. And if you'll remember, Steve Walker was the name of the guy he stole the diploma from. So that kind of put a little bit of a, a damper on the whole insanity plea. So he had tried to say that he was gui not guilty by reason of insanity, but he wound up going with a plea bargain. If he went with a plea bargain, he could stay in California, which didn't have the death penalty and it was a nicer prison system. Whereas if he pursued his not guilty by reason of insanity and didn't take the plea bargain, he would have to be tried in Washington, which apparently had a terrible reputation and, you know, you could get the death penalty. So he wound up plea bargaining and he agreed to testify against Angelo. And the part of the plea bar bargain was that he had to testify against Angelo truthfully. And under California law, the accused could not be convicted solely on the testimony of an accomplice, but if the accomplice's testimony was corroborated by other evidence, 
direct or circumstantial, it could be used to convict. So this is really, really important because they were never able to find much evidence against Angelo. There were things like um, like that fluff on the eyelid that they could tie back to his upholstery shop. There might have been some hair fiber. There might have been some fibers and things like that. But the thing is, part of why they were having such trouble finding things is apparently he cleaned the fuck out of his house all the time. Like he was always cleaning. His obsessive cleaning ended up coming in handy for him because they could not find shit. Supposedly, I read in a couple things where the cops were like, we couldn't even find his own fucking fingerprints in his own house because he would clean things so much. So that was one of, the, one of the reasons. I don't know that DNA evidence was great back then anyway. So basically, they just had Ken's testimonies and then these few pieces of circumstantial evidence. There was a witness that was across the street that saw them kidnap and she could identify him. And there were people that could that actually picked Angelo out of, out of pictures. So there were witnesses. There just wasn't a whole lot of evidence to the point where prosecution tried to get them to just drop it because they're like, look, there's not much on this. And Ken's not real reliable. Mr. Split personality changing his story every five seconds. But the judge decided, you know what? We need to we he needs to go to trial for based on what we've seen. The one thing is that Ken, even though he would change his stories, he knew enough of the details of the killings that no one would know but the killer. Like, for example, on Christina, the needle marks, they just saw needle marks on her arm. He mentioned there was one on her neck and they went back and looked and they had missed it. There was one on her neck. So details like that, that it was obvious that Ken was at least telling parts of the truth. Angelo wound up getting arrested on October 22nd. He was found guilty, life without parole. Kenny, because he, when he was on the stand for Angelo, he was just crazy pants and just it was all over the place and contradicting himself. And it was just a big mess. So the judge is like, fuck you, Kenny, go to Walla Walla. So he ends up saying, you didn't live, live, live up to the plea bargain. You're going to Washington. Because again, the plea bargain was that if he told the truth, he could stay in, in California. But if he didn't, he had to go to Washington. While in prison, both Angelo and Kenny got married. Angelo remarried in 1979 and Kenny remarried in 1989. Like I said in um, The Hillside Strangler, the Ted Schwartz book, where he just mentions Angelo in passing. And there's some that, that don't even really necessarily completely believe that Angelo was the other strangler. They're, they do believe there was another strangler, but they don't believe it was Angelo. I think that a pretty strong case is made that it was Angelo and the, and the killing stopped. Though, this is, this is another interesting thing, is we don't know that Ken killed before Angelo. He was with Angelo. So we talked about the alphabet murders. We don't know that he actually did it because that was unsolved and he was never officially tied to it. So if that was not him, then his first killing was with Angelo. But... If he did those, then we see that he was willing to kill and able to kill before he had a partner. And that's interesting if to sh if he was willing to kill before. If that was not him, then it took Angelo to give him the extra whatever he needed to be able to do it. Angelo, as far as we know, never killed anyone outside of when he was with Kenny. So we see that circumstance of where you take two people who maybe weren't killing before and you put them together and they become that perfect killing team where they have just the right elements to give them the courage to give them the courage to kill. I do think that because Angelo was known as being a ladies man, you know, obviously he had ton, tons of different wives. He had a ton of kids. People talked about how he had women coming around and they didn't understand why because apparently he wasn't terribly attractive. And he was like, yeah, I got, you know, I got my necklace. I got what? <laughs> I got my zucchinis for fingers. So he's got the swagger and Ken's got the energy to the point where I do in two of a kind they do paint it as as Ken's like yeah 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 let's do it let's do it let's do it and it's just like all right calm down we'll do it it's all right you know like so it's very much 
Ken is excited, and Angela's excited, but he's more laid back about it. He's like, all right, come on, we've got to be sensible. So as we see, Angela was never, he was convicted, but he almost wasn't. So he was obviously the calm, collected brains, whereas Ken was the energy and motivation, I guess. And I think that Angelo, because he didn't kill after Kenny left, it just shows, well, yeah, he had fun doing it. We didn't really need to do it. And his hide was worth more than going out and killing people that he didn't want to get caught. And that's why he was cleaning everything. That's why he was so careful. That's why he tried to calm Kenny down about it. Whereas as soon as Kenny got away, he killed two women and were caught, was caught the next fucking day. So he obviously needed Angelo's calm, calm, you know, coolness. And, and without that, he got fucked. There's a part of me that thinks, well, if he was able to kill by himself after he left Angelo, then he probably was able to kill before he met Angelo. But you could also say that maybe it took being with Angelo to escalate him to the point of being able to do it by himself if he was not involved with the alphabet murders. At any rate, we know Ken loves the killing, even if it was uh, his one of his multiple personalities that actually loved it or not. He definitely was killing and raping because he liked to do it, at least part of him. And we don't know about Angelo because he won't officially fucking say anything, which I get. It's like the Ted Bundy thing is, you, you know, you keep, you keep denying. And if you gaslight people enough... It can make them question themselves. There was a whole group of people who were on Ted Bundy's side because, you know, he was in politics and believe he went to church. And so they're like, well, there's no way he can do it. Because if you look at him and, you know, he doesn't seem like he'd be a killer. And he kept denying, denying, there's no way it was me. And it wasn't until he was about to be killed that he started saying, OK, well, maybe I did do it because he wanted to save his eye. Angelo apparently never did that. And Angelo died in prison in 2002 of, I believe, a heart attack. And a side note... A fun side note, in the book Two of a Kind, the cop is saying some of the names of people that he runs into while he's doing his interviews out on the street, and I figured I would share them with you because they're quite entertaining. There is Sunshine Sally, Eggnog, and that one specifically cracks me up because it's, try to imagine if it's just because he really likes eggnog, so then they're like, hey, it's eggnog, or maybe he just randomly always has eggnog and no one knows where he gets it and no one really wants to ask. There's Youngblood. Cowboy Dave, Flaky, which Flaky, I'm wondering is if it's because he had dandruff or because he was just unreliable. And I'm hoping for his sake it was just dandruff because at least you can get rid of that and it's harder to learn to be stable and not so unreliable. There's Skateboard, which would be interesting if he never actually was on a skateboard. That's the story I want to hear is a guy named Skateboard that never had a skateboard. I don't know. He didn't go into details, but that's what I like to think that he had some crazy story about why he's called Skateboard. My friend Travis could probably come up with a really good story. I might have to ask him, and then I'll let you guys know. There's Lobo, Green Irene, and Funny Bunny. There's also Sticky Foot, and I just like to be like, as it smelling, Sticky Foot? There's Pig Valve. Again, I would love to know where the hell Pig Valve came from. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. But you know how I'd greet Pig Valve? What's shaking, bacon? Dad jokes aside, that is all of the uh, Hillside Strangler portion of the program. I will be jumping in here in a moment with the Killing Cousins, David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield. While Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bono were known as the Hillside Stranglers, David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield were known as the Killing Cousins. The dates of the murders are from 1981 to 1983. There are six confirmed victims. Fred was 31 when caught and David was 30. 
The location was in Vero Beach, Florida. The primary book references are Innocent Prey by Bernie Ward, The Serial Killer Letters by Jennifer Furio, and The Killing Cousins by Jack Rosewood. Fred Waterfield was born 929-1952 in New Jersey, before his family moved back to Florida. David Allen Gore was born 821-53 and was raised in Vero Beach, Florida. David had one younger sister, Wendy. His father, Alva, was a fruit grove manager. His mother, Velma, worked as the librarian. Fred had two sisters, Connie and Debbie. Connie was the same age as David, and Debbie was a few years younger. Not a whole lot is mentioned about Fred's parents, except uh, that his dad was an engineer for NASA. So (laughs) that's a big one. Fred and David grew up together. They were often mistaken as brothers because they were always together. Fred's dad was an engineer for NASA, like I said, so he was gone a lot. Dave's father, Alva, spent lots of time with them hunting and fishing. Fred's mom and David's mom were sisters. So there's the cousin connection. Fred played football in high school. Little else is known about him. Supposedly he had a bad temper, temper, and he was popular, but his temper drove people away. He apparently liked violent sex, though he always had girlfriends and lots of sex stories. Their high school friends say that David was the opposite of Fred. David was awkward and into firearms, gunsmithing, and hunting on his family's orchards. They had a mutual friend named Phil Williams, and he hung out with them while they were growing up. Phil said that after spending time with them, he always felt that Fred was the stronger of the two, and he actually hunted with the cousins. He said that David would wait for the prey to come to him, and Fred would actually go after the prey. Phil tells a story about Fred having an idea of going to kill someone's domesticated pig. So they go in Phil's truck, and Phil realizes that he's the one who's doing all of the things that could get caught. So if anything happened, they'd be like, oh, well, they were in your truck, and they used your gun. And, you know, and Fred would be able to say, I don't know, I didn't know he was going to do it. I was just along for the ride. So there's an interesting little piece of information there. Fred and David started to talk about rape fantasies and, quote, how we should just take women and do things to them. It's claimed that Fred's first act was on eight-year-old friend of his cousin Wendy. Now, speaking of Wendy, David's first sex lesson from Fred was on David's sister Wendy. She was 15. They were 18. And Fred's like, come here, you know, come here, I want to show you something. He's like, here, hold Wendy down. So David's holding his sister down, and Fred pulls off her pants and sticks his fingers in her vagina. And he's like, come on, Dave, you take a turn. And Dave's like, this is my sister. Like, what the fuck? So he actually stopped, and this is all from Wendy. So there are references that say that they raped her and that Dave took part in it as well. But what I read from An Innocent Prey that is quoting Wendy is that Wendy says they just, he, Fred, put his fingers in her, but that Dave wouldn't do it. Well, that is a terrible thing and traumatic. At least Dave stopped Fred. You know, he stopped it from going any further. They were both in the same grade, even though they were born, one was born in 52 and one was in 53. They grew up in the same grades. Both dropped out in their senior year. Later, Dave did get his GED. This is where 
one roller coaster starts with their marriages. Fred married Donna Peterson when he dropped out, and then David married Donna Blanton, apparently at Fred's insistence. Now, again, I'll remind you that Phil had said, and other people that were around him in high school saw that Fred was like the big character and Dave was always running around behind him and in his shadow, basically, and doing whatever he said he'd, whatever Fred wanted him to do. I think it probably is possible that he just got married to a woman named Donna because Fred wanted him to. Dave became a grove supervisor. He had 1,200 acres of groves to look after. So that's a big, important factor in this. He had a mobile home and a barn in the middle of one of the groves, which is isolated. And he had a truck with a toolbox box on it. So these are all very important things. Fred and Donna had twin daughters, Michelle, Don, and Shauna Marie in 1973. Dave had a son named Michael in 1974. Then they got divorced. And Dave married Connie Jean Ayers. She had also just divorced, so it was kind of perfect. Right after that, Fred and Donna divorce. So at this point, both Donnas have come and gone. And now there's a Connie in the picture for Dave. In 1975, Fred moved in with Denise Lentil, which apparently is not her real name, but I wasn't able to find what her real name is. They had a baby girl. Okay, she had a baby girl. And she listed Fred as the dad, which to me means that maybe they weren't 100% sure that he actually was the father but they're just going to go by the baby records. It doesn't matter because then Fred remarries Donna again, and then they were together until 1976. And speaking of divorce, Connie and David divorce in 1976. It looks like they're both getting divorced in 1976, and they got bored because they didn't have their women's around, I guess. I don't know. Or they probably just wanted to hunt women anyway because they'd been talking about doing it when they were kids anyway. So now they're acting, acting on it. They decide to attempt to kidnap a woman, Diane Sullivan Smalley, on June 22nd, 1976. What they did is they followed her on the highway and they were trying to shoot out her tires. They thought it would be easy. So they were apparently, um, one was trying to shoot, it kept missing. So the other one took over and managed to get her back tire. I think both back, back tires. She kind of at first was like, well, I heard something, but I didn't think it was possible it was a gun because I'm on the highway. But then she's like, no, I know what a gun sounds like. What the fuck? And then her t- she could feel her tires were flat. She's like, There's, she didn't, she's like, what the hell is going on? Like, surely no one's shooting my tires out on the highway. And she didn't want to pull over because she saw she had seen this car following her. So she finally pulls over and gets out because what the hell else are you going to do? It's dangerous to drive on flat tires. So they get out. They put a gun on her, have her get in the car. And she's obviously freaked out. One of them goes back to their car to get something. So they're distracted by that. So she's looking out the window, like praying that someone's going to pass and trying to figure out how to go. So then finally she sees another car coming. So she's like, they may shoot me while I'm running away. I don't know, but I have to try. So she jumps out of the car and actually the couple, couple was an older couple, actually let her get in the car and she gets away. So that's amazing. And they're, the guys are like, okay, they're going to go straight to the cops. So they fucking run. But unfortunately, they do go to the cops and the cops didn't have enough information to actually find the guys. So they get away with it. So we've got Dave had married Donna, divorced Donna, and and now he remarried her again in 1977. They have a second child in 1981 named Jonathan. 1981 is a big year. This is where their killing spree starts. February 19th. David is driving. He sees a girl walking alongside the, alongside the road. He had seen her get off her school bus, and she's apparently walking home. She's 17 years old. So he shows her his badge, 
and tells her to get in the truck that he needs her help. I think like with a burglary or something, he needs her to help them out. So she she doesn't speak the best English. So she says, I, I need to go home to mom. Let's go home to my mom and we'll figure it out. So he's kind of thrown off, but he's like, okay, what the fuck ever. So he takes her home and quickly assesses a place and realizes it's just the mom and the daughter at home. So since there's no one else there to get in the way, he's like, fuck it, I'm going to take both of them. He shows them the badge and is like, you guys need to come with me for questioning. And they're freaked out, but they're like, okay, I'll come with you. If I haven't said their names, I apologize. It's Sang Huang Ling and Ying Kuo Ling. I think I said that right. I apologize if I didn't. So motherling and daughterling. The mom's 48, the daughter's 17. The dad is actually out working and the son is at school, which it sucks because the son just missed them by I think something like 20 minutes. He gets them in the truck. He drives them out to a grove. Okay. Version one, which is the most common version that I've seen, while he, he waited for Fred to show up. So while he's waiting, he raped them both. When Fred showed up, he tied the mom to the tree in a way that if she tried to get away, she would strangle herself. And then he rapes the daughter while the mom is dying. Fred then told Gore to get rid of her. So David dismembered the bodies, placing them in steel drums and burying them in the groves. Version two, he picked her up saying there's a series of burglaries. Once he gets them to the grove, he ties them up, cuts off the mom's clothes, props the mom up to watch, cuts off the daughter's clothes, exposes himself. The mom freaks out. So he freaks out and he shoots her in the head several times. Then he pulls her over to the daughter and slits her throat. He couldn't get hard, so he put the daughter in the toolbox, dismembered the mom, took the daughter to his home, tied her up on the bed, took pictures of her. Still wasn't hard, so he drank a beer, he waited for a little bit, and then when he felt capable, then he raped her all night, strangled her, dismembered her, put her in bags, and then buried them in the grove. Now, I will note that the cops did find drums, so most likely it is the first version, but we will get more into that here in a bit. So they went missing. And then on 614, he was a reserve deputy with the sheriff's department. Does that sound familiar? So this is one of those coincidences that I was, was surprising to me, where you have the dynamic of two people and one of them happens to be in the sheriff's reserves. Now, Ken Bianchi, it took him forever so technically, he didn't really get in the reserves until right before he was caught. But he did wind up being in the reserves. So it's, again, it's still that commonality of they were both interested in, in the power of being affiliated with the cops. And of course, it is abused. Because while David was on, on duty, he had, it was in his uniform, he had his badge and was in the vehicle. He saw Diane or Dana Sturgis and he pulled her over and he said she was speeding. The 18-year-old was leery of him, and he was like, well, hold on, just come ride with me, and, you know, I'll take you and I'll question you. And, and she's like, no, I, I don't think it's necessary for me to ride with you. Can, can I just, uh, can you just follow me? And you I, here's my ID. You can just follow me. So he signals her to turn off at a certain spot, but there were fi people fishing there. So then he gives her back the ID, and he's like, you know what? It's okay. You can just go ahead and go. And the whole thing was really weird to her. She got a weird feeling from the whole thing, as she should. So she went to the sheriff department and re reported it. In one book, it says that the sheriff just took his badge away. But what actually happened is they had him resign or he'd be fired. So he had a choice. You could either resign or we'd fire you. So he just went ahead and left. On July 15th, 
35-year-old Judith K. Daly. She was visiting from California. David was driving around looking for women. He had with him his 357 Magnum, his 22 rifle, a hunting knife, handcuffs, police scanner, and his lucky old jar of 100-proof vodka. That's right, he was an alcoholic. So he loved his vodka, and he kept a jar of vodka with him at all times. Apparently, Fred had said he wanted a blonde, so while David's driving around, he sees one, which happens to be Judith Daly, and she's at the beach by herself. So David disabled her car, and when she walks up and realizes it's disabled, he just happens to be there and offers her a ride. When she's in the car, he pulls a gun on her, and he handcuffed her. He took her to a grove, raped her, and strangled her. Now, I know you'll be surprised, no, there's a second version where he met up with Fred and they raped her in a secluded area and then Fred left with her alive. Now, as far as the disposal, there are two versions. David claims to have gotten rid of her body in a swamp, left her for the alligators, and in the second version, he claims to have buried her. On July 21st, which is just like six days after poor Judith Daly, Marilyn Owens, 23-year-old, was at a doctor's clinic for an appointment. She came outside, she's about to get in her car, and she sees a big fucking sweaty dude hiding in the back. So luckily, a sheriff's deputy happened to be there. He had had an appointment as well. He came outside and she's freaking out. She's running to try to find a phone or something to get hold of the cops and she sees him and she's like, oh my God, there's a fucking sweaty dude in the back of my car. So <laughs> the sheriff's deputy looks in there, has a guy get out, and in there he finds a 357 Magnum, handcuffs, police scanner, and a half-filled jar of vodka. The Gore Trademarks. It is the David Allen Gore care kit. David's car was nearby, and inside it were three rifles, a rope, and cuffs. So, you know, I mean, purely innocent things, right? He claimed that his wife had just left him, and he thought he saw her there. So he hid in the nearest place, which was the back of Marilyn's car, because he was afraid that his wife would think that she was, he was stalking her. And uh, we should note she was not there. Like, they could prove that she wasn't there, and it was obvious he was a big old dirty liar. He wound up going to a correctional facility for this crime. In the same year, Donna does divorce him, and when interviewed by the police, she said uh, he had burgled houses, including her sister's. Also in 1981, in Fred's love life, Fred met Pam Marie Vards, 44 years old. Fred was 29. They got married in November. And they stayed together for a year and a half. Pam said he left her for another woman. He moved in with Marianne Schildwachter. I'm not great with German. I'm sorry, she was Swiss. She was a 20-year-old Swiss beauty. So Fred is moving on up. I don't know. He's moving on. He's doing something. Meanwhile, while Fred's uh, bouncing around with the ladies, Dave is in prison where he was a butcher. A butcher. He was released in 1982 for work release. And then his final complete release in 1983. His job was at a truck stop. And uh, he was fired. I think you'll be surprised why. He was caught drilling peepholes in a woman's restroom. Oh, what a wonderful piece of shit. And possibly money stealing. I guess the uh, boss called the cops and the cops were like, oh, we'll look into it. And they didn't really show up. So the boss was like, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to fire you. Now, about the time that he was caught in the back of Marilyn's car. Now, keep in mind, like everybody knew everybody. This is a town where people know people and, and families have been there for generations upon generations upon generations. And... Gore had been in the sheriff's department in the reserve section, so he knew the cops. So when this cop pulled him out of the car, he's like, dude, you know me. And at this point, all of the cops were starting to think, maybe there's not something right. 
about uh, Mr. David Allen here. And they said it's interesting that like the Lings went missing and someone said that they thought they saw Dave in the area. And then, you know, someone else goes missing and he was around the area. And these women are missing and somehow David seems to be in the vicinity. And they don't have any like hard evidence, but it's real creepy and enough for them to want to keep their eye on him. And then they catch him in the back of a woman's car with, with guns and handcuffs. So they decide maybe we should kind of keep an eye on him when he gets out. So they keep an eye on him. And I guess the family saw them watching because they did, they made it known. But the family threatened to sue for harassment. So they had to pull back some. Now, this is similar, if you recall, to the Callengers, where they thought that Joseph Callenger had killed his son, Joey. And so they were so convinced they started following him to the point where he ended up suing them for harassment. So they would back off of him. The next victims were on 5-2083, so a couple years later, and, well, because he was in prison, so apparently uh, Fred was busy just uh, dipping his wick as opposed to, what? I mean, there's no proof that he had raped or killed anyone while What's-His-Butt was in prison. I guess it was probably building up because they got two girls the next time. They were out cruising around, specifically looking for women. They saw these two girls hitchhiking. It turns out they're both 14 years old. They pick up the girls, pull a gun on them. In one version, Fred takes them in the back, takes their clothes off, ties them up, raped one, drove to his barn. He told Dave to get rid of the girls. Dave takes the girls to the grove, rapes and kills them. In version two, Gore got in the back and tied them up. Then Fred said to get rid of them. So Gore took them to the grove. He shot the girl named Angelica, put her in the bushes. Then he took the other girl, Barbara, back to Fred because he was like, well, she's she's the prettier of the two, so I thought he'd want to have sex with her again. And Fred's like, what the fuck? No, get rid of everything. We're done, you know, I don't want to get caught. Fucking get rid of her. So Dave takes her back where he had the other girl, shoots her, he buries them. Now there's a note, Angela's bod- Angelica's body is never found. The, the girl's names, full names, I apologize, I didn't give the full names. Barbara Ann Byer and Angelica Lavallee. Sorry, there was a, the third version. In the third version... Fred took the girls to his shop. David went to get gas. He came back and Fred said he shot them in the head because his mom was coming over and he, it was getting too messy. So David took them to the grove, buried one and took the other to the swamp. Their last set of victims are Lynn Elliott, 17 and Reagan Martin, 14. They were hitchhiking as well. They were students at Vero Beach High School and they were picked up by Gore and Waterfield at Wabasso Beach on 726. And they were taken to a home owned by Gore's parents. Fred saw his sister on the way and he freaked out. So he left. And so Gore ends up tying the girls up in separate rooms, raping Reagan. And then Lynn gets away. So he chases after her naked. They're both naked, running outside. And he shoots Lynn in the head. A neighbor boy was riding his bike and he sees this big old sweaty naked man chasing this scared naked teenager and shoot her so he winds up running home and calling the police gore saw him and freaked out so he puts her body in the trunk and he goes inside and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do there was then a 90 minute police standoff and then gore finally gave up and was taken into custody thank god reagan was found alive she was naked handcuffed and bound with electrical cords binding her legs in the attic but she was alive so thank god she got away Fred was not there when the cops showed up, but they were like, I'm pretty sure Fred's going to be involved. So Phil Williams, who had been their friend growing up, he went to the shop. He had actually kind of started hanging out with them because he had some suspicions. So he thought, well, I'm going to hang out and see if I can get 
any more information about this and see if I can pick up anything from hanging out with them. So he went to, Fred owned a auto body shop, which that's also interesting that you have the pair where the non-verbal one own some kind of car shop or car upholstery shop. So that's also kind of weird that in both of these cases you have you have the guy that is in the auto body and then the guy and it, and it also happens to be the same guy who clams up. So that's interesting to me is that they both have the same I guess personality types, which I guess shouldn't be surprising. Fred said he was there when they picked up Lynn and Reagan. He was like, "What the fuck? I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know he was gonna rape the girls. He just dropped me off at work and I just." went forward because I just figured he was, you know, fucking around and he wasn't going to do anything bad. Yeah, because that's likely. Now, Gore was like, all right, I'm just going to fucking tell you everything. He claims that he was relieved. So he's like, okay, I raped, mutilated, and killed five people. And he talked about Judith Daly, the Lings, and then the two 14-year-old girls. He actually took them to the remains of three of the six victims. He wound up getting the death penalty. He did say that there were more victims and that he told the police there were more victims, but that he didn't think that they wanted to pursue it because they had enough. They had a confession about five of them. So that was enough for the death penalty. So it's it it sometimes does happen that if there are several victims and the person gets charged with them and already gets like the death penalty or life in prison, that even if they know there are more victims, they don't always pursue them because of that, because it would cost more time and effort. And and unfortunately, that's not great for the families of the victims because they would still like closure. But unfortunately, it just doesn't always work out that way, especially if a lot of the victims are unsolved. What's also interesting is I read something where one of the cops said, you know, there really weren't any other missing women cases. Like those were all the missing women. So we're not actually sure what he's talking about. We wouldn't be surprised if there were more, but I don't know who else it would be. I'm not sure what the truth is, but I guess ultimately at least he was removed from the streets where he could do more damage. Fred was initially charged with three murders, Elliot due to her being killed after the kidnapping, and then the two 14-year-olds. But he was not charged with any other killings because there was no connection between them. The way they ended up connecting him to the two 14-year-olds is they found credit card signatures for gas. So basically what happened is since he had this auto business, he was driving around his work car and he had a secretary that kept track of all of his receipts. So he kept every single receipt for gas except for I think it was two and the two that were missing were on the on the same days that uh, Byer and Lavely went missing. So to the jury... That was, that was what really got them on Fred, that they were actually kind of like, well, Fred, there's really not much other evidence that he was involved other than David's stories. And, you know, honestly, the people who testified on behalf of Fred didn't really help him out too much. But they were still like, well, honestly, what tipped us over were those credit card receipts. Because if he kept everything and then he just happens not to have the ones that would prove that he was at the scene when the rape and murders occurred, you know, that, um, that was what really got them. Now, again, Fred wasn't saying shit, and Dave was saying that Fred was a mastermind. Dave claimed that they did their first rape together was on one of Fred's girlfriends, that it was Fred's idea. So they pulled a gun, took her to a grove, and raped her. So that's where that pattern had started, apparently. And she told someone, but no one believed her. Another thing that came out was that David said Fred would pay him $1,000 for every teenage girl that David brought to him. Now, in another place, he said it was $2,000. It is difficult to tell how many women they might have raped because they, they would travel and they would pick up hitchhikers. 
So that's one thing that when the cops like, well, there's no one missing around here. If they traveled, maybe there are people missing in other places or maybe they're attacking people in other places. So I think there was probably a lot more than just the ones that we know of. I think especially if it's true that he was paying him. But and David does say, oh, he wanted a blonde or, you know, he wanted this and he wanted that. So that's what I went out and tried to get. So I I do think there probably was an element to it. I don't know if it's actually the 1000 or $2,000 for every girl or not. It's disgusting no matter what. Of course, Fred never said shit, so we don't know Fred's side of it. David, according to the serial killer letters, in his letter to Jennifer Furio, his letters, he claims that he feels remorse and he's religious. So it's his big mission in life to warn women about serial killers. Because he was one, he's trying to get them to understand this is how they can work. He claims that he abducted women out of their homes and that he'd spend days planning it and doing it and then he was never caught. He said he would rape, torture, mutilate, and murder. He claims that he raped with a stick or a shovel, that he decapitated, scalped, skinned, and he fed parts to alligators. It's difficult to know how much of that is true. We do know that he did put a body in the swamp where alligators would be. I wasn't able to really find any quote-unquote proof that he raped anyone with a stick or shovel. I would not be surprised if he did any of these things. I mean, he was able to dismember people. And he would talk about disemboweling them and liking the way their intestines felt in his hands and stuff like that. What was handy about the book Innocent Prey is that in the back they do have testimonies from some different people and then actually uh, some forensics reports. So in those reports... In one of them, they found two heads, a torso, an upper extremity, and three lower extremities. The cause of the death was gunshot wounds to both heads, which was the lings. So where he says before that the common story is that Fred tied the mom to the tree and she strangled to death. Well, apparently they shot her too. So it's interesting that there are gunshot wounds to the head. And in one of Dave's versions, he claims that he shot her. So I'm wondering if that version's true or maybe he, they still shot her afterwards to be sure that she was dead so that both versions have their moments of truth. They found Byer's skull and it had a gunshot and then they found some of her bones. So they did shoot Byer's. There was another skull and bones and upper extremities and the person was strangled. I'm trying to remember what victim, if that was Judith, because she was strangled. It didn't say for certain who that was, but I was trying to think out of the victims they mentioned who was strangled, so I would think it would almost have to be her. After they were caught, a neighbor of Fred's confessed that he lived across the street from her, and he raped her when she was only 14. She mentions she's doing a review of the book Innocent Prey, and she said it tells the truth, and I quote, These maniacs roamed the streets of my hometown looking for their next victims. They did it for pure sport. I can testify to that fact. Every mother and daughter should sit down and read and discuss this book together. There was a report that in uh, 1973, 20-year-old Fred raped his 14-year-old neighbor, Peggy Kaplan, and attempted the same of her sister, Jackie, but she was able to get away. Now, he didn't do any time for that because she didn't say anything about it until afterwards. Gore did get married in prison, so that's a feather in his cap. The Serial Killer Letters was published in 1998, but in 2012... David started talking to someone named Tony Siglia. And Tony's letters are put in the book The Serial Killer Whisperer by Pete Early. I will be going more into detail about this. I'm going to do a side episode where I compare the serial killer letters to the serial killer whisperer because I have a feeling we're going to see two different sides of Dave. 
because he claims our favorite target was hitchhikers. We used to laugh and call them freebies because there was basically no risk involved and they were easy to catch. I mean, you have two men hunting for one and one jumps right in the car with you. How simple is that? And then he goes on to say where he buried the bodies and where he hid his trophies. And he describes scalps he took and, and that he was proud of it. Now, in the serial killer letters, he sounds very remorseful. He will go into detail and talk about what he did, but he's very remorseful. And I think the interesting part is in the serial killer letters, he's writing to a woman. In the serial killer whisperer, he's writing to a man. So at one, I, I haven't read the whisperer yet. But I will be interested to see if maybe there's a dynamic of he softens it up for the woman and then he builds it up for the man, which is why I want to do a side episode because I'd like to develop that more and see if that's a thing. And just from reading this article about the book, it seems that may be the case. So what's also interesting about this book is that when it came out, the judge saw it. It was brought to the judge's attention that he was flouting the shit that he did. And so instead of staying his sentence of death, he moved it up. So he wound up dying on, on April 12th, 2012. He got lethal injection. It was the governor. I said the judge. Sorry, it was the governor, Rick Scott, who signed the death warrant over 40 other men because of the shit that he wrote in these letters. Like one of them is, uh, it's sort of along the lines of being horny. You start getting horny and it keeps building until you have to get some relief. That is the same with the urge to kill. It usually starts out slow and builds and you will take whatever chance is necessary to satisfy it. Believe me, you constantly think about getting caught, but the rush is worth the risk. Gore supposedly told Tony he felt used by him after the book came out since the death date was pushed up. Well, I think, uh, I think you probably, uh, dug your own grave there. Almost literally. Igor, my socially distant assistant, recommended we have a lab-resistant portion of the show. So everything's so down and heavy, we'll take a moment to make things lighter by acknowledging the women who are able to get away from these horrible people. So for this episode, it would be with Waterfield and Gore, Reagan got away. Diane, who had her tires shot out, she got away. And then also Marilyn Owens, where he was hiding in the back of her car. So Reagan, Diane, and Angela, you are lab resistant and we salute you. So that's all for this episode. And like I said, there's more coming. I will be getting more in depth with David Allen Gore letters and... I know that I will be definitely mentioning both of these uh, sets of people in other episodes. So thank you for tuning in. You can get more information at MurderLabMedia.com. Murder Lab is available on iTunes and Google Play. You can also look us up on your favorite podcast app. Finding the RSS feed at MurderLabMedia.com. Thank you for entering the lab. There's some lovely filth over here.